Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As we prepare to take a week off for our summer Independence Day break, we are bringing you two shows in one, our Washington and business roundtables in one program. We'll hear from our business team later in the podcast. But first, joining us to discuss a very busy week in Washington and beyond are Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute, former Pentagon Comptroller Bob Hale of the Center for a New American Security, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many roles is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, absolute pleasure again having all of you guys on. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And tune in for the Cabas Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Christopher P. Cabas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, that each week help cut through the fog this week, talking to Congresswoman Elaine Luria later today, and a recap of the FCA West show, as well as naval news from around the world. Don't miss it. Michael, start us off uh, on the Hill. Lots of action. Uh, from uh, move, the move to repeal the 2001 authorization of military force. We've got infrastructure um, and House uh, Appropriation Defense Subcommittee uh, markups. Walk us through what were the big uh, defense and aerospace needle movers on the Hill. Sure, thank you. So last week we spoke about you know, Biden's you know, bungled rollout of the infrastructure plan where he announced a bipartisan compromise, said both sides didn't get everything they needed. And within two hours, completely pulled the rug out from under the negotiators and said he wouldn't sign uh, the bipartisan package without the larger reconciliation package at the same time. Uh, he angered lawmakers on both sides of the aisle with those statements uh, and both chambers, and has spent a lot of time since then uh, rolling that back. Um, but despite that fact, there are still several things that can, de that can derail uh, the infrastructure package. One, obviously, it would be the CBO score, depending on how the pay-fors work. And the next would be you know, one of the pay for is, is increased IRS enforcement, uh, adding $40 billion to the IRS, something Republicans probably are not going to go for. And of course, uh, reconciliation hangs over everybody's head, even though Biden has decoupled the two, the Democrats have not. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who chairs the Budget Committee, has said no reconciliation, no deal. And uh, Pelosi has said very clearly that she plans to link the bipartisan infrastructure agreement to a second package which has the rest of the Democratic priorities in it. And they will not vote on the uh, bipartisan package, even if the Senate sends it to them, until the Senate also sends them uh, the larger reconciliation package. So uh, this still has a long way to go. And we already see Democrats in the House now starting to question the reconciliation package as well. So I, I think that the hopes continue to, to dim for this, but um, this, will, this will play out well into the fall. Um, I know we're going to hear more from the brilliant Mackenzie Eaglin soon on the on the uh, hack D markup that happened earlier this week. Uh, but obviously um, can't say what happened on the Hill without mentioning that very quickly. Uh, as I had said earlier, I figured that the Congress would add money to the procurement accounts, which they did, uh, including the shipbuilding right. accounts. Uh, but there are uh, several things in here that's, uh, that will be problematic for Republicans to vote for it. One, obviously, cutting the Navy's nuclear uh, tip cruise missile, uh, closing uh, Guantanamo Bay, uh, requiring contractors to pay a $15 minimum wage and some of the money in there uh, for climate change and, and green energy will be controversial for Republicans. Uh, we've known all along the top line is, a, is an issue for Republicans, but I think uh, one of the things they probably will do is pass uh, the appropriations bills in two minibuses. And I think that it's likely that the defense bill will go in the same package that the labor HHS bill will go in because the Democrats added $61 billion in spending to the labor HHS package. So I think it'll be a way to try and entice the progressives to vote for the package. I still think it's gonna be difficult to pass, but we'll see. Then we talked last week about how the house had repealed the 2002 uh, authorization of military force for the invasion of Iraq. Uh, this week, the House uh, repealed two more AUMFs, one for the 1991 uh, Gulf War and another one, which I didn't even know existed, uh, from 1957 uh, to prevent the spread of Soviet communism uh, in the Middle East. 
Uh, the Senate is expected to take these up right after the uh, July 4th recess. Uh, but as you know, uh, President Biden carried out airstrikes in Iraq and Syria against uh, Iranian-backed militias uh, earlier this week. And a lot of the Democrats, especially the progressives, were unhappy with that. And some felt it was kind of thumbing their nose at Congress, especially doing it right after the, the AUMF was, was repealed. And in fact, Senator Chris Murphy, who's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said it would be in Biden's interest to ask Congress for a new authorization if he believes the U.S. is going to continue to, have to, to hit these Iranian-backed uh, targets. And in fact, the, the White House has been negotiating with uh, Congress on a new AUMF. I think it's going to be extremely uh, difficult to pass. But in the end, there's not a lot that Congress can do. I mean, they can revoke these AUMFs and try and scale back these war authorizations, but they can't prevent the president from claiming his Article II authority uh, to justify military action. And just to uh, briefly point out, right, I mean, the White House's angle to this was that this was a pressing threat from Iranian-backed militias who were using unmanned aerial systems with which to threaten uh, allied uh, and and uh, American uh, forces, right? I mean, so there was not, you know, their, their case is this was a pressing thing. We had to act. We had to act with urgency uh, in order to eliminate a threat. Absolutely. And it's something that he's got support from many Republicans, including the ranking member, Mike Rogers, who in his statement last week uh, used this as an example that we still need to be able to combat Iranian-backed militias that are direct and imminent threat to U.S. forces in the region. So the last thing um, I think that was significant that happened this week uh, for national security was uh, the rollout of uh, Nancy Pelosi's um, select committee investigating the events of, of January 6th. Uh, since the, the Republicans did forego the chance to have a bipartisan uh, commission that would have been equally split, this one will be stacked in favor of the Democrats. Pelosi gets to appoint eight people. Uh, the Republicans uh, under McCarthy get to appoint five. But what's interesting, uh, even though Pelosi gets to appoint eight, she appointed seven Democrats and she did appoint one Republican. She appointed Liz Cheney uh, to the panel. Now, earlier in the day, uh, Leader McCarthy was threatening to strip any GOP member who agreed to serve on the committee at Pelosi's request of their committee assignments. And of course, we know Liz Cheney is a very important member of the House Armed Services Committee. But toward the end of the day, uh, McCarthy was walking those statements back. So it looks like uh, um, Liz Cheney will serve on this panel and will still be able to serve on the Armed Services Committee. Now, McCarthy can appoint five people. However, um, Pelosi has veto authority over those five. So whereas he's getting some push, of course, not expected to appoint people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has no committees, so has plenty of time on her hand, uh, Pelosi can reject those. So I don't think that uh, uh, McCarthy will waste his time with that. But it'll be interesting to see who he does, in fact, right. appoint. And in the end, you know, like I said last week, this is just going to end up and devolve into a partisan shouting match. Look, this could have been an organized select committee uh, backed by the House and Senate. Senate Republicans didn't want it and because it's going to implicate Republican members of Congress at the end of the day. And they didn't they didn't want that. So, yep. you, you know, you're going to get, you know, for the party that demanded Benghazi, 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 something like 28 times. I, I you know, I mean, one was an existential threat. Uh, potential, at least from a constitutional standpoint, whereas, whereas uh, you know, the, the other one was uh, an unfortunate in incident overseas. Mackenzie, let me bring you in on the on the hack the uh, deliberations, what you thought were interesting uh, takeaways, and then Bob, get your sense, uh, and then uh, Dove, yours on what uh, jumped out at you, because we've also got some very, very prominent uh, folks that uh, should have been slam dunks for confirmation that are also uh, languishing. Uh, our mutual friend Frank Kendall, uh, as Air Force Secretary, is on is on hold. Mike Brown also on hold. Um, you know, Jen Easterly, uh, the CISA director, also on hold. Right. I mean, a lot of top talent that's uh, you know uh, burning holes uh, uh, on pause. Mackenzie, start us off on the hack beat. Sure, and I would add Susanna Bloom to that list as Cape Director, also. Susanna on hold. Bloom as Cape Director, another another uh, highly qualified person who's uh, waiting on in in the wings to get blessed. Go ahead. Well, what I think is most remarkable about the hack D mark, which is basically in line with the Biden request, is Michael's point that, you know, a 60 billion plus up for labor age. Can you even imagine <laughs> if the Pentagon got a just a randomly extra free 60 billion in one year? I mean, that's pretty remarkable for no reason except to get votes. So I just would sort of put that out there to remind everyone on top of like the double digit increases every single federal agency got except defense. 
which makes it doubly remarkable. Right. So, you know, it, some of the plus ups in the, the house mark, uh, you know, that are that we know about. Uh, none of us have secret text except maybe Herson. Um, but uh, that what we know about are not a surprise. We know Congress is going to put the, the destroyer back into the program. But what is a surprise are some of the comments surrounding some of their changes, which is, includes uh, Republicans calling out the Navy for its budget gimmicks. Like everybody plays the game every year, right? You know, the Army underfunds certain aviation programs. The Navy's done this, this tried and true. I mean, Bob can talk to this and Dove. Everybody plays the game where they underfund things they know and hope Congress will add back. Many times they do. Sometimes they don't. But now it's hit the point of ridiculousness where where members of Congress are saying, um, for example, about the littoral combat ship retirements, you know, just a handful of years old that, you know, yes, obviously they oppose these early decommissionings. But, uh, you know, the ranking member Calvert has said this is nothing more than a budget gimmick to allow the Navy to spend more money elsewhere. So it, it does seem as if things are changing on the Hill, like they're going along to some extent, but it didn't work with the Joint Strike Fighter. So what we saw this year, for example, was appropriators did not add additional joint strike fighters beyond the administration's request. And that is something, of course, they do with regularity year after year after year, but not this year. So it's interesting to see what this portends for the rest of the Biden administration, you know, the 23 budget and beyond. I think we'll all be watching that. Um, some other interesting uh, funds and provisions that Michael didn't touch on because he, he did do a, a great job summarizing it. Uh, is to, you know, no permanent base, no money for any permanent bases in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, prohibiting the use of funds for any military operations in Yemen, right? So the House has already taken a variety of votes on this, but prohibiting the use of funds is a significant next step, right? It, it's it's more serious than just passing sense of the Congress or resolutions and urging the administration to do something. When you yank the money, they actually have to stop. The tankers come, you know, they get grounded and that sort of thing. And then also something that's been in the works for a while, but particularly after the pandemic and the protests, you know, they're limiting the transfer of military and defense and Pentagon equipment to state and local law enforcement agencies. I think right. there's, you know, bipartisan support to really relook, give this program a scrub. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, answering the question of whether there has been some militarization of law enforcement here domestically because of the kind of equipment and tactics and other things that are being used. Uh, and so I'd say net net, the Navy's probably the biggest quote winner, but I think the Navy was the biggest budget loser overall. So that's sort of a push. <laughs> Bob, what were the things that jumped out uh, at you over the course of the week? Well, Michael and Mackenzie have covered a lot. Let me start, though, with the top line. Congress appropriates two bills for defense. The defense bill has most of the money, and we focused on that. But they also do a military construction bill. The House, as Appropriations Committee, full committee, has finished on military construction. The two together are about a billion dollars over uh, the administration's request, with the overage all being in the military construction bill. Um, and I think that tells you something about where the Democrats are headed, and it's to ignore the progressives in their wing that want cuts in defense. I've said that before, as have many others. Uh, but I think now we see a specific markup. I share Michael and McKenzie's feeling this will be a hard bill to pass because of all the political items that um, uh, uh, Michael mentioned, and I won't go through them again. It doesn't make a lot of changes, uh, maybe partly because they haven't seen the markups for the, uh, from the authorizers yet, but there was a, an ad in procurement of a billion seven and a cut of a billion six in RDT&E. In terms of passing the bill, I'll add one other thought, and that is both of these bills uh, contain something called community project funding initiatives. These are earmarks, uh, which of course have formally returned in the House and probably will return in the Senate. Um, there are uh, 27 of them, if I counted correctly, um, in the two bills uh, with 30 million in the defense bill and 200 and some odd million in the uh, 200 million in the military construction bill. We'll see whether these earmarks help smooth some of the passage, uh, which, as I've said, I think will be a challenge in the House. Dove, what, what's your sense on uh, sort of the key, key takeaways of the week? And what you make of so many talented people not getting anywhere at a time when some of these uh, confirmations should have happened much more quickly. Well, one key takeaway, uh, which ties in to some extent with what uh, my, uh, Mike was talking about in terms of authorizations for use of military force, 
is we're out of Bagram. That was the big base that we had in Afghanistan. And it really is symbolic of uh, our getting out of there entirely. That, that's probably the biggest deal of all is in terms of one single place that we got out of. Um, I, I, by the way, I, I agree that if the president needs to do something, he'll do it. If my memory serves me correctly, um, Mr. Truman did not ask for any authorization when he went in to fight the Korean War. Uh, in fact, I think that was the precedent for a lot of the things that happened afterwards. But uh, the, the fact that uh, we're, Congress is debating uh, all kinds of AUMFs, and the one in 57, by the way, opened the door for Eisenhower to go into Lebanon in 58, which wasn't exactly a great success. Um, the fact that AUMFs well, also also in Vietnam, you know, a couple of years after that, right, in terms of exactly, advisors. Exactly. And, and so but it is interesting that the very week that AUMFs are, are in the headlines, we get out of Bagram. Uh, in terms of uh, the people who are being held up, it's, it's quite remarkable. And it tells you a lot about how the Senate kind of works. Um, Susanna Bloom, who's up for. CAPE, the, uh, what used to be called Program Analysis and Evaluation, the evaluation shop of the Pentagon, is being held up, not because she's not capable or anything to do with her, really, but because Senator Wicker, uh, Roger Wicker, wants the Navy to buy more amphibious ships. And, and so she's being held hostage. Um, <clears throat> Gary Peters is uh, annoyed uh, because the, uh, a, a new international tr uh, training uh, facility for F-35s, which he wanted to go uh, to Selfridge uh, Air National Guard Base in Michigan, instead is going to Ebbing over in Arkansas. So he's holding up Frank Kendall. Uh, there are actually two other holds on, on Kendall, who is widely respected. Uh, on uh, Anybody who knows anything about defense, frankly, respects uh, Kendall. Um, the other two are Mike Lee, who won't even admit that there's a hold or his staff doesn't want to admit anything. Uh, and then there's Elizabeth Warren, uh, who apparently admits there's a hold, but that she's holding him up. But she won't, admit, won't say why. Uh, people suspect it's because of his ties to industry. And, and uh, we all know what the Senator Warren thinks about that. And then there's uh, yet another hold, uh, Mike Brown. Uh, who is uh, up for undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment. And, and again, a highly respected uh, individual who was really quite successful with the Defense Innovation Unit, which reaches out to small businesses that have cutting edge technologies, which you would have thought is pretty important if we're trying to stay ahead of China. Uh, he's being held up as well. Uh, and uh, again, apparently because of ties to industry. So uh, you know, the Senate may not be able to pass legislation, but seems to be able to hold people up that the country desperately needs. And I should uh, quickly point out, U.S. military uh, advisors uh, arrived in Saigon in, in 1950. Uh, Michael, is confirmation, is are, are any of these confirmations going to move as quickly as we need them to move? I mean, could these holds end up becoming much longer and potentially terminal in some of these cases? Well, I don't think they'll become terminal, but I do think they will become longer, and especially because the, the schedule works against these confirmations. I mean, the Senate's just not uh, in session that much. Uh, we were and, and they were up against a long uh, summer break coming up uh, that goes well past uh, Labor Day, uh, and it seems that there are many Democrats who are not afraid to put a hold on a Democrat's uh, nominee, um, you know, for their own uh, parochial purposes. Um, so as we're seeing right now uh, over the Secretary of the Air Force with the uh, people of Michigan uh, unhappy about not getting the, um, the training facility for F-35s. You know, I, I spoke to a member, a chief of staff yesterday to a congresswoman on um, armed services who was also very uh, upset about this. So, um, you know, it's, it's a shame. But and, 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 I, and I think about you know, how I feel if I was in their, their shoes, too. I mean, it's the capstone of your career. You're, you're serving your government. You're taking a massive pay cut. And uh, you have you're at the whim of a lot of other people that have nothing to do with your own background. So I, I, I do think that eventually that Biden will get the folks that he needs. It's just going to take a lot of time. Um, well, Michael, I can add one story. Oh, in 1994, yeah. I was on hold for five months because a senator from Kentucky wanted more C-130s at a guard base there. So it can last a while. Uh, so so your uh, advice to them, uh, Bob, is hang tough. 
Yes, that's the only thing they can do. Uh, and unfortunately, and I'm, and I'm sure the administration is trying. I know I've, I've heard from the Air Force people, they're trying hard on Frank, but, um, you know, they, the, the senators control this, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I would recommend taking Tums, actually, um, because, <laughs> because, you know, it, ultimately, I, I think, as Mike says, they'll get through. Um, it's actually interesting if you put yourself in the place of John Roth, who was a very talented deputy director of, uh, uh, of my office and then of Bob's office. Uh, he's been Air For acting Air Force secretary for a very long time, and it looks like it'll be even longer. So it'll be quite a capstone for his career, but that's not the way the system should work. And, one strategy uh, is to pick one person and see if they'll agree to a hold on just one. I mean, it's nasty, but uh, that was actually what happened with me. Rudy De Leon, uh, who was an Air Force undersecretary, said, put me on hold, let the rest of them go. And Congress did. Uh, so, I mean, they may have to come to a strategy like that. Kenzie, very quickly, there were a lot of questions about, you know, why this administration was so uh, hard over on nuclear modernization. And this week we may have gotten the answer. Right. Uh, you mean the developments with, with Russia and China? Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I think that really probably was a big surprise to most people that the administration was largely supportive of the last team's plan for this year for for nuclear modernization. I see it slightly differently. I think, you know, with all the reviews underway, they're biding their time and, and want to take that that time for the review and then to make arguments that can survive contact with Congress because none of them would have this year except for, of course, what Michael noted, uh, the, the agreement to go along with the defunding of the, the nuclear missile. But yes, right. So Russia tested a new ICBM and it was reported that China's, um, you know, digging deep holes for 100 new missile silos for their ICBMs. And meanwhile, you know, we're, we're slapping our triad to death and can't figure out. How, I'm just teasing. But, you know, we're struggling to get to the next phase for our own nuclear modernization. And I'm sure that it's very likely to your implication, Vago, that, you know, perhaps some at the Pentagon knew that about this kind of intelligence a while ago, even though the rest of us just found out. Exactly. A hundred new silos in uh, the Chinese uh, desert near Yumen. Go, go ahead, Duff. Well, uh, the Chinese, of course, have always been uh, very opaque about their program, but they still have a lot fewer missiles than the, the Russians do. But the Russians have been very open about where they're headed uh, with nuclear hypersonics, uh, with new missiles and so on. And it's almost as if we've been deaf about it for some time. And the administration uh, simply woke, didn't wake up. It, it just saw what was right there uh, in plain sight that the Russians are charging ahead with modernization, uh, even though they just signed up to new start again. Um, I, I want to point out that even though there's a review uh, or, uh, you know, that there are multiple reviews going on, whether it's on a national security strategy, a new national defense strategy, as well as a, uh, a nuclear uh, roadmap. I want to point out to everybody that Raytheon won the LRSO uh, contract, a $2 billion award to, to develop the next generation uh, nuclear cruise missile, right? I mean, so the administration, you know, it's, it's unclear to me what kind of sail trimming you can do when they've put in their interim national defense strategy, nuclear modernization at the heart and core uh, of that whether on the Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine, the ground-based strategic deterrent, the LRSO, and obviously uh, the B-61 program continues, uh, even though that's been much criticized over uh, a number of administrations now. Can I jump yeah, in real ahead. fast? Yeah, I've got go one, important, one important development this week on this topic was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee reversing his past position on the ground-based strategic deterrent. He said this weekend, this week, excuse me, that, you know, he's looked at the cost of extending the Minuteman 3, you know, if you want to service life, extend that program. Those of us who've been following it, we already knew this, but what he said basically is it doesn't save you any money. It's more actually more expensive than just getting the next capability, um, the ground-based strategic deterrent. And he said specifically, we are not going to kill the GBSD program. We've got to keep it alive. That's a big win for those who support the triad. We're running short on time, but it's important to do uh, a remembrance uh, of uh, Donald Rumsfeld and his place in uh, history uh, and also separating the man who could be very, very 
uh, kind, uh, thoughtful, uh, and soft-spoken from uh, the tough guy uh, persona Dove. Uh, you work with Don Rumsfeld uh, for years on a daily basis as uh, the, the comptroller uh, in the room with a lot of very difficult decisions, including going to war in Afghanistan and wrote a very thoughtful piece uh, about the man in, in The Hill. Talk to us about the difference between uh, Dom Rumsfeld that you work for, the positive attributes as well as the negative, very polarizing figure for some kind of straight talking, cheeky, tough, uh, the man who was working to transform the Pentagon for others, uh, a man who made some you know, bad decisions about uh, Afghanistan and, and Iraq, and then was maybe too cute by a half uh, during them. Well, uh, he, he certainly wanted to have a, a public persona of, of a tough guy who um, had a thick skin. By the way, he really did have a thick skin. Um, and who, who would, uh, you know, give as good as he got, if not more. Um, he really was a nice man. He was very, very charitable. He didn't want people to know very much about that. Um, help, just help people out financially when they needed it. Uh, he also happened to be uh, very, very caring. I mean, everybody knew about what happened right after 9-11 when he was running around pushing gurneys. Uh, and he was very briefly a hero. But then, of course, Iraq came and it it's not well understood that he never really believed in all this stuff about democratizing the Middle East. That wasn't him. That was other people. <clears throat> but he took the heat for the president. Well, let, let's say it was it was Wolfowitz and people in the White House who thought that they could do that without yes, any that's disrespect and to anybody. That's correct. And then uh, if people didn't notice this, but as long as he was secretary of defense and, you know, after Abu Ghraib, uh, he offered his uh, to to resign. He actually twice offered to resign. Um, as long as he was there, Bush didn't take the heat for a lot of this. He took it. Once he left, all the uh, the bitterness and the anger was directed directly at the president. He ran interference to the president. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, but as I say, he had a thick skin. He was a really decent guy. And one thing that I've talked about to some folks is uh, my dad passed away while I was uh, in the Pentagon. And, you know, I could have gotten some kind of typed note with a some signature or whatever. I get this handwritten note from him and he writes, and I'll never forget this to the day I go. Um, he writes, whenever you lose a parent, it creates a hole in your heart. And I thought, my God, this man really thought about this before he penned that. And that was a Rumsfeld people just did not know. Um, yes, he, you know, there are people who say he's the worst secretary of defense ever. Uh, but, you know, you look at, for instance, Obama's use of uh, drones and special forces. That was that was what Rumsfeld pushed. He pushed drones against the Air Force. He pushed special forces against all the services. Um, he was wanted to reform the, the, the entire way the department did its business. He was shocked that nothing had changed after 25 years. He told me to create what became the Defense Business Board, which has made some impact and had, has produced all kinds of uh, important uh, suggestions uh, about how to improve the Pentagon. Uh, at the time, I asked uh, Mike Baer to become vice chairman, and subsequently, he was a terrific chairman twice. I mean, if you actually look at what Rumsfeld did when he was really Secretary of War, not Secretary of Defense, and what he wanted to do, which he couldn't do because he became Secretary of War, I think you have to have a far more balanced view of this man than I think many people have. Um, I, I should shout out Brad Graham's uh, great piece in the Post uh, that uh, talks about the, you know, the, the youngest ever defense secretary, the oldest ever defense secretary, as you said, held the job over uh, two, uh, two, two terms. Navy pilot uh, flew the S-2. Uh, you know, served in Congress, was President Ford's chief of staff, uh, CEO of several successful uh, companies, uh, and, uh, and ultimately somebody who was very focused on China. Uh, in fact, as you note, uh, great, great story in your piece. Uh, really uh, an interesting story. He and I and a small group were in Beijing and they took us to their war museum. And we saw this life-size tableau of uh, Chinese leaving amphibious boats to land on Taiwan. And he had already had his doubts about China. He was close to Andy Marshall, who'd been 
warning about China for a decade, but this hit him between the eyes. He kept talking about China when others wanted to talk about the Middle East. He was, that was real foresight. What we've woken up to today was what he saw 20 years ago. Uh, although there were those who would say that the prosecution of the war was, uh, you know, a, a big failure, right? I mean, you could look at McNamara as being the person who reformed the department, but also the person who was embroiled in Vietnam. He's remembered more for the embroilment in Vietnam than for all the other uh, positive things that me, he, he may have done. Uh, Bob, give us uh, your reminiscences. So I have a short story about Rumsfeld that is the soft side of this guy. I was on the defense business board that Dove mentioned, uh, probably thanks to Dove. Um, and he, a couple of years into it, he invited uh, all the defense uh, business board and science board members to his house uh, for a reception. This beautiful home right across from the French embassy. My wife had real doubts about Rumsfeld thought of him as abrasive, but she came along. He met us at the door and was very gracious. And in his right arm, he had a small dachshund uh, and there was another one at his feet. And he explained that the new, the dachshund in his arms was new, not used to parties. He was kind of getting him, uh, teaching him how you behave as a dog at a party. And so he walked off uh, and the, uh, the experienced dachshund followed and immediately began looking for tidbits, but Rumsfeld kept the other one in his arm for much of the party. So there was a soft side to the guy, uh, even though he, I'm sure, had an abrasive side as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, a number of people have pointed out, and I think Doug Feith was quoted in Brad Graham's piece, uh, that unfortunately his own abrasiveness uh, may have gotten in the way of him making the kind of progress he wanted uh, to make, you know, as, as he said in his last town hall, uh, that, um, you know, he gave himself a five out of ten. Uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, I was uh, at uh, the Military Times Company at the time when we wrote uh, the editorial and ran in all of them that uh, that that it was time for Rumsfeld to go. And, and soon after that, obviously, was the electoral reversal in 2006. You know, nobody does these jobs wanting to screw up ultimately and always wants to do the best job. Um, a lot of mistakes were made. What do, what do you think his biggest mistakes were? ultimately, while in office? I think his biggest mistake uh, was, and it's surprising given the kind of person he was, uh, not fighting back when uh, it was clear that there was a push both uh, within some quarters of DOD uh, and the White House to go after Saddam Hussein and, and launch the war in Iraq. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, this was a man who was a terrific bureaucratic infighter, who was tough as nails, and who could have, for instance, gone to his friend Dick Cheney and said uh, that now isn't the time. Uh, there was obviously a concern, I suspect, more than suspect, that if they didn't go after Saddam in 03, they wouldn't be able to do it in 04 because it was an election year and because Bush had barely won in 2000, they weren't sure he'd be back in 05. And there were people who really wanted to go after Saddam. But Rumsfeld, I might have been able to stop it. I can't say he would have. This is counterfactual. But he, but he doesn't seem to have tried to have pushed back, or at least it's not well known that he did. We do know that he pushed back on a number of things, but I don't know that that was one of them. And I suspect had he been the way he normally was when he was fighting bureau bureaucratics, uh, he might actually have succeeded. And then everything that happened after 03 just might not have happened at all. And, and, and he was somebody who was not that crazy about going to Afghanistan right away, was he? I mean, if I remember in Doug's, uh, Doug Fife's book, Rumsfeld makes the case, hey, look, everybody expects us to charge in. Let's get a better understanding of the groundwork before we go into Afghanistan, because that too can end up becoming problematic. Well, that was because that was Rumsfeld's nature. He, he, he was a realist in every respect of that word. And, and so, uh, yes, uh, it made sense that he would say something like that. Uh, of course, the momentum for going in was really great. Uh, I wrote in my book that uh, when we met with the president on the 12th of September, he had made it pretty clear he was going to war. So the momentum was there. And uh, of course, public sympathy, international sympathy was there. That wasn't the case with Iraq. And I think that the, that the, the Secretary Rumsfeld 
had more than one opportunity to uh, push back. He could have pointed to Congress. He could have pointed to the allies. There were lots of ways he could have simply said, look, let's finish Afghanistan. Um, I don't see any record. Maybe it'll come out someday, but I've seen no record uh, of him saying uh, of him saying pretty much what Doug Fife reports he said about Afghanistan. And 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 let me ask one one last question. Uh, uh, you know, he he was very tough. He could be very belittling, uh, and yet, why wasn't he tougher on military leaders when progress of the war was going so badly? What why was there not a greater? Because he was criticized for having an eight thousand mile long screwdriver by some, even though George Casey maintains he was the best guy to have on the other end of the phone if you were a general officer in the field. On the other hand, if you're a general officer in the field who's not doing the right thing, the expectation is for the civilian to try to intercede. What, what was the civil military mistake uh, or problem? Because at the end of the day, a lot of Americans died and may have died unnecessarily, as well as a lot of Iraqis, because of the decisions that were being made in, in Washington, as well as among general officers who were prosecuting these campaigns. And, and, well, and those look, in uniform and in civilian life. Look, he didn't hesitate to uh, criticize the military when it was a question of the program or uh, of studies or analysis. The military did not like the fact that he had gone to Andy Marshall to do a whole number of studies that uh, really would have changed the way they did their business. That he was, he had no hesitation doing but I do believe that he felt that it was the commander in the field who knew best, who had, who was on the ground, who knew best what to do. Now, you know, there was, of course, the legacy of Lyndon Johnson telling people where to bomb. And there was a lot of criticism of that. And in fact, uh, in the Obama administration, if you recall, there was a lot of criticism that the White House was telling the military exactly how to do its job. Uh, maybe because he had been in the military himself, he felt that those guys knew what they were doing better than he did sitting in an office in Washington, even if he was the Secretary of Defense. He simply wasn't going to teach them operations and tactics. And uh, one could argue he was wrong, but one could also argue he was right. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hope all of you have uh, a great Fourth of July and a great week. Looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so very much. Happy birthday, America. Thanks for the chance to be here, Vago. Thank you, Vago. Have a wonderful fourth, Vago. And joining us now on what was a busy aerospace week are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Amalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy, constituting our Denmark Bureau for the next couple of weeks. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Greetings from your loyal Danish office, Vago. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you very, very much, Richard. We're, we're glad to have you. Uh, and thanks very much for being patient and joining us on this Friday. Normally, everybody knows we tape on Sunday, but we're giving everybody a week off uh, for uh, the July 4 holiday. Sash, start us off. Uh, big news of the week. Switzerland picked the F-35 uh, Lightning II uh, stealth fighter over a range of other aircraft. Thinking was that the Swiss would opt for the Rafale uh, to replace its F-18s and F-5s, as we've discussed repeatedly. There was this sense that critical comments from U.S. Uh, leaders like the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, or even the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff, C.Q. Brown, and his top generals uh, would doom the bid. Uh, first, let's talk about the uh, F-35 uh, and what it means for the market, uh, especially given Finland and, and other nations are looking at the F-35. And also feel free to touch on Germany's decision to buy P-8s and Switzerland's decision uh, to buy the Patriot as well. A very good week for uh, U.S. defense companies and a really very bad week for European defense companies. Um, as you said, you know, three orders, uh, two Swiss and, and one German, which... Um, uh, you know, show the weakness of Europe, the European defence industry in its broadest sense, and also the, weak, the weakness of the European defence political uh, constructs. And, um, you know, the F-35 for Switzerland, first of all, I am utterly puzzled by this. The Swiss wanted, or said they wanted an air policing aircraft, something that they could operate from distributed bases, quite a lot of um, uh, quick reaction alert 
uh, uh, work and in many respects, you know, they, they, they have historically hidden a lot of their aircraft in tunnels in the mountains. That's not the classic operational use of an F-35 in any other country, even Norway. Um, and, uh, I, you know, uh, clearly the Lockheed Martin bid is incredibly competitive in terms of purchase cost. I mean, really astonishingly competitive purchase costs. Some of the Swiss comments about operating costs are frankly incredible, given that in the UK, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has said the F-35 is his biggest headache because of operating costs. Um, I think we will see the F-35 bid almost certainly go to yet another Swiss referendum. Uh, It's not obvious to me that you can actually run defence in Switzerland with constant referendums, referenda, but, you know, that's the way their system works. Uh, So it's not over yet, but this really was quite a a remarkable decision. Um, And clearly, you know, the French in particular, but I think also the Germans are very, very surprised. Uh, And it may be that the pressure that the European Union has been putting on Switzerland uh, in terms of uh, almost, you know, the Swiss version of, of Brexit, but you know, tra- the, trade, the trade and financial services deal um, has, uh, you know, combined to make the Swiss feel particularly bloody-minded about things. And there's a, there's a lesson there, I think. Um, two other uh, deals, though, uh, you know, orders, which are very important. The Swiss have also ordered uh, a whole bunch of Patriot uh, missiles, fire units, radars, and so forth. Um, and my takeaway from this is this is just awful news for the European defence industry because it just shows the Europeans don't have a functioning, competitive, medium-range surface-to-air missile system. The uh, Eurosam, which is a, a joint venture of TALIS and MBDA, um, SAMP-T system based on the Astair missile, clearly just doesn't work. Uh, in the sense that it, it is not competitive in terms of uh, kinematics, cost, uh, operational deployments, and so forth. And I think, given that Europe is short of air defence, Europe needs a lot of new systems, Germany with the MEADS programme, not having a competitive European medium-range surface-to-air missile system is a horrible, horrible uh, gap in European industrial capabilities. Finally, uh, the Germans are buying uh, at least five uh, P-8 aircraft from Boeing. Um, the French are absolutely hopping about this because they thought they had a deal to develop a maritime patrol aircraft under the Moors uh, program uh, with Germany. And the Germans have, have basically said, you know, Moors isn't going to be ready, probably won't work, you know, all, all that stuff. And that has, you know, the, the, the French are saying that they purposely restructured their entire Atlantic uh, upgrade program to suit the Germans. Um, I think that the Moors program now looks like it might uh, collapse. And there's a sort of domino effect. You know, you have Moors, you have the uh, main battle tank program, uh, you have Eurodrone, and eventually, you know what, we come back to SCAF and FCAS again. This is not a good ending to Angela Merkel's uh, chancellorship. Uh, and it just suggests that the Franco German alliance is nowhere near as strong as we had expected it to be. Final issue, Finland, F-35 looks like, looks like the front runner now, ahead of uh, Boeing and the F-18. Can Boeing afford two F-18 losses? That's the interesting question. It, it is interesting whether it will go to another referendum, given, uh, reminding our audience, the super Gripen, uh, if you will, um, had been the original winner. Uh, decision was said, OK, we'll, we're going to uh, take uh, the fighter decision uh, to a national referendum. One would imagine that once it did go to a referendum, it would all be downhill for the uh, government, given that, uh, you know, the Swiss people narrowly voted for a fighter modernization. Right. I mean, so at this point, what would the grounds be for a reversal when the, the nation's technical authorities and political authorities have made a decision? Oh, I think the, the, the grounds are that the F-35s are bomber, not a fighter. You know, the, I mean, after all, the grounds for rejecting Gripen in the first place were that it was too much of a fighter. Now it looks too little of a fighter, frankly. I, I would uh, put a counterpoint to that, that the F-35 uh, program office would say, we're not an optimized air-to-air airplane, but the stealthy nature of it actually makes it a very, very potent uh, air, aircraft. And it does have a remarkable speed and uh, endurance uh, that's even greater than the CD jets and certainly the F-5s that they're uh, using, right? So it's an upgrade. Richard, how do you uh, see this decision or these decisions? Yeah, I broadly see things in line with uh, Sasha's viewpoint. You know, I mean, the thing about the F-35 that I think is appealing, particularly for countries like Switzerland and Finland, is the sensor capabilities, the, uh, the mission equipment package, 
which of course is, you know, I think far more important than any of the other traditional metrics. So people are going to try to paint it as a, a strike plane or even a bomber. But the reality is that its ability to look at stuff and see stuff and track stuff is pretty darn great. Uh, Sasha's points about, about uh, operating costs, very, very well taken. I'll put on my hat as your loyal Danish correspondent here. And, you know, remember the Danes did exactly the same thing. They found a way to make the operating costs look very competitive. Everyone knows this thing is expensive to operate, but the heart wants what it wants. So they got it. Uh, and I suspect you'll see the same thing in Switzerland. I don't know. I mean, I point about Swiss democracy and endless referenda, referendi, whatever, well taken, but boy, there are limits. And I, I, I'm not so sure they could really sabotage it. Although bearing in mind the, the, the referendum governing this one was a 50.1, uh, right. vote. So maybe that's a vulnerability. Sash is of course dead right about, boy, the German P8 decision. And what was very funny about it, if you can call a P8 decision funny, is that they painted it as an interim solution. No, right. maritime patrol aircraft are 40 year solutions. Uh, no, there's not going to be a reinvention of the Atlantique through the MOZ program, or indeed a MOZ in general, it was always a marginal requirement for most of these folks. You know, I mean, yes, there were 28 Atlantique twos. I believe that was the number. There wasn't going to be anything like that. Does any of this justify a bespoke air vehicle? Germans getting five or 10? No, it really doesn't. I thought the idea was kind of doomed from the word go. Uh, so I, I think, yes, it has been a bad week from the standpoint of joint the, the political aspect of joint European procurement and weapons creation, um, no question. Point about Patriot also thrown in there. Um, Ray Finland, yeah, you'd absolutely have to make think that exactly the same thinking as in Denmark and Switzerland will also apply to Finland and the ability to, well, to look and see its stuff, <laughs> pure and simple, the mission right. equipment package. Can the F-18 survive another blow? Well, it's survived plenty of blows. Remember, it, you know, in terms of uh, exports, it's still just two countries after, what, 25 years of trying with the Super Hornet. So it's a big gang that can't quite shoot straight. And maybe they'll have another chance in Canada if they don't, I don't know, sue Canada through the WTO again or something like that. Ugh. So in general, not a great week for Europeans weapons providers, but uh, probably not catastrophic for Boeing. Uh um, I'm uh, just the point on the F-35. The F-35 operating cost was never said that it was going to be the same as uh, the airplanes it's replacing. On the other hand, it is a much, much more honest cost. So when you look at the cost per flying hour, it is a fully amortized 50-year, right? I mean, so what, what's more honest? Is it more honest for you to claim that you just put gas and consumables in the jet or that you're actually de-check it and you do all of the other mods and upgrades and broader maintenance and that the combat system is factored into the cost per flying hour. You know, I think anybody who complains about the F-35 cost per flying hour, frankly, at this point, is just being grossly disingenuous. Everybody who's True. a player knows what it is, knows how it's calculated. And I think it, it, I, I'm not going to make a case that it's a value. It's just a much more honest cost and assessment. I, I think what's important, and, and uh, you brought this up, it's not just an honest operating cost, but it's an operating cost that will come down over time because a chunk of it is allocated to uh, software costs. And as you know, as the software gets uh, upgraded and your software changes, it gets amortized over the entire fleet. So as the fleet grows, the, you know, that, that operating cost calculation will come down. I mean, just it just naturally will. So that's that's another factor. Ron, certainly a big week uh, for Boeing. As you noted, United uh, ordered uh, new jets, nearly 300 of them, 270 uh, new planes, of which 200 were 737 Maxes. The rest went to Airbus uh, and the A321neo, right? A little bit of a change of fortunes. Why did we see what it is we saw? And also talk to us about the new chief financial uh, officer who's going to be replacing uh, Greg Smith, who retired recently. Yeah, so uh, let's answer the second question first. That's the, the easier one. Um, you know, uh, Brian has a, has a tenure with uh, Dave Calhoun. Uh, they were both at uh, GE Aircraft Engines. Uh, and then uh, Brian worked as a CFO at Nielsen, uh, uh, which was uh, you know, uh, a BlackRock-related uh, company. So, um, uh, excuse me, Blackstone-related company. So there's some common tenure there. Um, 
So you know, and I think you know Dave picked someone that he's comfortable with that he knows from you know his his you know past tenure. Uh, I would say the investor um, response was was muted, maybe questioning. You know, are you picking someone that is going to be a yes man or someone that might challenge you as as the company navigates uh, the challenges that are, that are ahead of it? Um, we'll see. It's early days, right? So um, you know, in all fairness, we'll see how it goes. Uh, on the on the United order, I think it, it's interesting how I would say the press looked at it and kind of the real underlying story. So I mean, you saw this: you know, United gets two hundred max tens. Okay, that's cool. Um, but I think the bigger story is they got seventy eight three twenty one neos. And, and when you think about the market share shift, this is an airline that was largely largely um, leaning towards Boeing products. Um, started to move. They ordered, I think it was 50 A321 uh, Neo XLRs um, before, um, but I think it was before the pandemic or right at the very beginning of it. Um, and this is an add-on to that. So if you if you if you if you if you look at that 270 airplane order, and that could have been all 737s, and it ended up not being all 737s. Uh, a chunk of it ended up being Airbus airplanes. I look at that as market share loss uh, from Boeing to Airbus, and then and then the second piece, which I think is important, that you have to ask, and you know this, I'm certain will filter out over time. You know, what was the price difference between those Max Tens and the A321 Neos? I would suspect, given all the the situation around the 737 Max, that Boeing got a excuse me that uh, Airbus excuse me United got a pretty good deal on those Max Tens, probably an outstanding deal. You know, time will tell. Uh, and then my guess would be on those A321 Neos, um, I, I would just guess, I'm interested to hear you know, Sasha's view on this. Airbus probably didn't budge much because they don't have to. Um, so I, I think, you know, as you peel back the onion, it's kind of a more interesting, interesting story here. Um, Sash, 30 seconds. Give us uh, your take. Yeah, uh, I, look, I, I agree with Ron. I don't think um, Airbus does very many deals on A321 Neos at the moment, particularly if there's any chance that the airline is going to upgrade them to the LR or the XLR variants, which are, you know, have sold astonishingly well. So, um, you know, price per seat for those A321s could be pretty high, but uh, the capability in terms of uh, available seat miles on an A321neo of almost any sort is incredibly high. And uh, United um, highlighted that in their, in their statement about this. So, yeah, you know, I, I think there, there, there was a difference in negotiating uh, position uh, for the for the two airframers uh, on on this deal, but the three twenty one neo, as we said quite a long time, is a very very strong selling. It's a very very attractive uh, product. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great Independence Day uh, holiday, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. As always. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Really appreciate it, Vago. That's for July fourth, of course. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.